past a couple of weeks ago, I, I'd said to you we're going to come back to them and tackle uh, some of the issues that Paul had to wrestle with uh, in engaging the Christians in Corinth. And I believe that there's a word uh, in there for us. Uh, that as Paul was writing this, he wasn't just writing to the church in Corinth in that day, but he was writing for all Christians uh, that we are to learn from the scriptures just as they did. Um, and so last week, we unpacked uh, sexual immorality. In fact, I think the title was Becoming a Sexually Mature Believer. Um, and so Paul goes in, and, and it, was, it was strong language that he used. Uh, I think it was somewhat uncomfortable. I heard some of you guys afterwards going, man, it was, it was good, but it was, it was uncomfortable to kind of uh, a journey on some of that stuff and uh, just talking about sex and the fact that God designed sex and designed it for, uh, to be practiced and to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, I've titled this message, Sex in Context. All right, Sex in in context, the mingling of souls. I mentioned this last week, and I'd really encourage you, if you weren't here last week, to go and listen to that message, uh, not because I think it was fantastic, but because I believe for the next four weeks, they kind of just build on one another. Um, we need to uh, kind of navigate together and be all on the same page, because it's going to be building on top of one another until we get to the end of this series within a series. And so today's Message is titled Sex in Context, the Mingling of Souls. And so if you have a Bible, you can meet me in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll be in only nine verses, all right, so verse 1 to 9. And I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for you, ask that you pray for me, that God would do something more powerful than we could ever imagine right here this very morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, hear these words. Of our Father. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that it is active and that it continues to transform the individual lives of people. And so, Lord, I ask that you would do that this morning, that you would meet us where we are. Father, we want to see you for who you are. Would you show us through the scriptures our desperate need for you? I pray against any distractions here this morning, especially as we talk about sex, something that uh, sometimes can be challenging, can be uncomfortable uh, to talk about. I pray against any distractions. pray against the evil one whose desire is to steal, kill, and destroy. But I ask that you would come and give life and give it to the full. And so, Lord, it's to that end that I ask that you would stand in my body, think through my mind, speak through my vocal cords, those things you'd have us know, say, and do. May the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. 
God, you are our king. You are our redeemer. Would you have your way in this place this morning? In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Sex in context. The mingling of souls. Now, we said this last week, that listen, God has designed sex. He created sex, but he created it and designed it for it to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. And so that's where we'll start this morning. We're going to talk about sex in context, sex in marriage. But in order for us to do that, we first have to unpack, well, what, what is marriage? All right, so for that, we'll go to Matthew chapter 19, where I believe Jesus beautifully unpacks, he defines what marriage is in Matthew chapter 19, particularly verses 4 to 6. He says this, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. This is how Jesus defines biblical marriage. I'm going to go through five things. All right, I'll be really, really quick, and then we'll get into the text. Five things that he says about biblical marriage. The first thing is that it's a union between humans. It's a, a union between humans, the male and the female. Jesus is referring to two human beings. Now, as obvious as this may sound, sometimes I think we can take this for granted. Because in some parts of the world, and maybe even here, there's something going around called eco-sexual weddings or marriages. This is where people will marry the ocean or a tree or the moon. These eco-sexual uh, people believe that that having sex or engaging uh, in sex with the earth is how we will save it. Don't ask me to explain what that means. Man, I'm still trying to get my head around veganism. So, so don't, please don't. Like, I, I read it and I was like, okay. So Jesus says, no, listen, a biblical marriage is a union between humans. The second thing that he tells us is that it's this gender complementarity. I believe that's how you pronounce that word. In verse 5, he starts with, therefore, because of gender complementarity in God's design for human beings, a marriage is instituted with a man leaving his parents for his wife. Both maleness and femaleness are required for biblical marriage to take place. We did this in a series that we did a couple months ago, Beautiful by Design, where we saw that God creates everything in complementary pairs. He does so with humans, male and female, two different genders coming together. The third thing that Jesus tells us about marriage is that there is mutual covenant, that there is mutual covenant, that the man is the initiator by leaving his former family unit to be bonded together, this bonding, this covenant with his wife, becoming one implied that she is also having to do the same, that she has to leave her family to enter into this mutual covenant, this act of oneness. The fourth thing that Jesus talks about is exclusivity. A man in a mutual covenant with his wife, singular, singular, rendering polygamy null and void in God's beautiful design. 
I know for many of us, maybe culturally, we come from that background. It may be accepted in culture, but in God's beautiful design, that is not a biblical marriage. And then the last thing that Jesus says is that this is a lifelong covenant. That this is a lifelong covenant. Jesus ends with, what God has joined together, let no man separate. We hear this language when we attend weddings. Lifelong covenant. Now, this now asks the question, well, what about divorce? Right? Because that happens. What about divorce? Now, we're going to get into that next week. All right? I promise you we'll get into that next week. And I believe God is incredibly gracious there. Despite some of the things that churches say about divorce, and there are some crazy things out there. there. Yes, there's the truth that we find in the scriptures, but I believe God is incredibly gracious. And so we'll hear about that next week. But I want you to know that in biblical marriage, it is a union between humans, that there's gender complementarity, mutual covenant, exclusivity, and it's a lifelong covenant. This is important for us to understand before we jump into the text, because remember, we're going to look at sex in context. And that sex was designed for marriage. And so every time I say that, I want you to go through those things that I've just given you, that that is what a biblical marriage is. That is what God constitutes as marriage. Now, last week, Paul unpacked sexual immorality. We said, like, listen, guys, sexual immorality is sin. Sex outside of marriage. It's a sin. Whatever that looks like, it is a sin. God is not pleased with it. And so he, he uses strong language in communicating to the church in Corinth. Things get crazy. I can only imagine things get super crazy because people are like, okay, wait, this is serious. This is super serious. So, so then Paul, why does then God give us, like why does he give us sex then? If we're not supposed to practice it outside of marriage, if we're not supposed to enjoy it because it is enjoyable. We're going to go to those places this morning. It, it, it is enjoyable then why, why did God give it? It's so hard. What am I to do with these urges, these desires? What am I to do with them? Paul says, okay, let's chat through that. He starts by saying, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. He says, okay, guys, listen, I understand that it's tough out there, but this is how we are to practice it in the context of marriage. Now, we touched on a few sexual immorality, some of them last week, but let me, let me unpack, let me remind you of what that is. This is what sexual immorality is. An affair, which I find interesting that that's what we call it these days, like an affair what the Bible calls adultery. This is sex outside of marriage. Maybe a married couple and then one of them goes outside of that marriage and has sex with someone else. But that is sexual immorality. Pornography. Pornography is sexual immorality. That is you're trying to gratify yourself by looking at a screen or images on a screen. Sexual immorality. NSA. Someone said this to me, and I was like, NSA, like national security, like what, what is that? It shows that I've been out the game for quite some time. NSA apparently stands for no strings attached. 
whether it's a one-night stand or friends with benefits, prostitution. This is sexual immorality. This is outside of God's beautiful design. Same-sex unions or relationships. We touched on this last week. This is outside of God's beautiful design, the ongoing, unrepentant practice of homosexuality. The significant other, that's the boyfriend or girlfriend or fiancé. Some of the language that I hear around this is, no, but we're married in our hearts. I'm like, that's really cute. But I don't see that in the scriptures. (laughs) Sexual immorality. And the last one, which I believe is obvious, but but I feel like I have to say it, especially in the climate and the context that we're in, is, is sexual violence. Sexual violence. This is sexual immorality. This is wrong. We know this, but still for some strange reason, this is happening in our culture and in our time. God frowns upon that. God set the right place we were supposed to enjoy sex. But because it is so pleasurable, the temptation to enjoy it outside of biblical marriage has an allure on most of us. Sex is enjoyable. So this is how Paul intros. But I love how Eugene Peterson in the message intros this letter. Listen to what he says. He says, now getting down to the questions you asked me in your letter to me, first, is it, is it a good thing to have sexual relations? Certainly. I love that. Certainly. But only within a certain context. It's good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have a husband. So he says, listen, certainly. Sex is good in the context of marriage. But it almost seems like what Paul is saying is, no, no, hold on, you can have... You can have sex because of the temptation that you guys have, then get married. This is how you relieve the sexual temptation. It sounds like that's what he's saying, but, but, but he's not. He unpacks it in verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Earlier this week at our staff meeting, I read that. I was reading it to the staff team, just trying to get some insight on listen, how to navigate through the text. And I misread the word rights. And I said, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal visits. And Jonah, Jonah looked at me and he's like, bro, marriage is not prison. He's <laughs> like, brother, I, mis- I misread it. My marriage is great. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. See, the major point of this paragraph is to tell us that sex in marriage is designed for the fulfillment of each partner. This is what Song of Songs, the Old Testament book, is all about. It beautifully captures this. Unfortunately, the topic of sex in church has become either this thing that we only talk about when we're talking about sexual immorality, or, man, we never talk about it so that when it does come up, it's like everyone's like giggling and it's uncomfortable and it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird to hear someone from my peers say, no, guys, sex is good. Sex is enjoyable. It's because we never talk about it. But the Old Testament book, Song of Songs, written to describe the dating and courtship and engagement, the wedding, the ensued married life of a couple, 
who before God are seeking to explore and discover all the beautiful connections that God intended when he made our bodies distinctly different from one another. This difference was by no accident. It was an an intentional design by God to fulfill a specific purpose. Therefore, you have in the beautiful language of Song of Songs a marvelous description of the ecstasy, the enjoyment, the pleasure that sex is designed to give. Everyone still comfortable? This is the language we're going to use because this is the language that the Bible uses. There are several important statements in this paragraph, in these few verses that we are to take into consideration. Firstly, you will see that Paul does not say to the husband or to the wife, demand your sexual rights. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say demand your sexual rights. He never puts it in that way. And yet many of our cultures, we find ourselves saying that to one another. It almost becomes the practice usually from the man, that he is allowed to demand sex from his wife. And that the wife is just to simply submit. I I hear some of these stories um, in some of the the, the pre-marriage counseling. In some of our cultures where, where the older women will say to the younger woman, listen, there's going to be days where you don't want and he's going to demand it, you must just give. I hear it and I'm like, this is ridiculous. Nothing is more destructive to, a marital, to marital happiness than that for the male to come and demand from his wife and for her to simply submit. To mistake and mistreat this passage where it speaks of the wife not ruling over her own body and thinking of this as giving license to the husband to demand sex whenever he wants is to destroy the whole beauty of sex in marriage. Nothing is more hurtful to a relationship than that. And Paul never says that here or anywhere else in Scripture. I just want to make that clear. I just want to make that clear. He never says that. What he does say is that what you have the right to do is to give him or her as a gift from you the fulfillment of these sexual desires. And this responsibility you have is not to your mate, but hear this. This responsibility is to the Lord. This responsibility is to the Lord. Now you may ask, where do I get that from? Because that sounds kind of wacky. Where do you get that from? Well, it's from last week's message. This is why I encourage you to go and listen to it if you weren't here. This is from last week's message where Paul says that the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. See, our bodies belong to the Lord and that we are under the submission of the Lord. Remember, he said last week, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So we are under the instruction of the Lord for the glory of the Lord. Therefore, this mutual responsibility towards one another is actually our obedience to the Lord. It's our obedience to the Lord. Therefore, Paul is essentially saying that it is the Lord who asks us to give this gift to our spouses and therefore to make it a foundation of, listen, mutual fulfillment and satisfaction. In other words, sex in marriage is a gift that you are to freely offer to one another. To freely offer to one another. It is not a selfish, self-centered, satisfying function of your own desire. 
Another way to say it is that it's not about you. It's not just simply about you. Marriage is a lifelong rhythm of beautiful giving and receiving, of friendship and service and growth. And this also includes sex. See, this is the second thing that Paul points out in the text. It's the second thing that he points out in the text. It's the devoting of yourself to the enjoyment of your spouse and to giving him or her the most exquisite sense of pleasure that you can. What ends up happening is you find your needs met in one another. You find your needs met in one another. That's why he says in verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. It's this, this mutual giving and receiving. This is not saying that you are slaves of one another. That's not what the text is saying. Rather, that the power to give fulfillment to your, spouse, your spouse's lies with you. He or she cannot fulfill himself or herself in this area. It is impossible. Well, some may say, no, hold on, I can. Maybe on my own, I can. And I would go, well, physically, you probably can. But it is a momentary mechanical fulfillment that leaves you psychologically and emotionally unfulfilled. Let's be honest, guys. And when I say guys, I'm saying everyone. So ladies, let's be honest. Yes, you, you can do this on your own, but, but it doesn't leave you fulfilled in the way that uh, the giving and the receiving in the context of marriage does. The Bible is saying that the only way that those psychological or emotional fulfillments can be met is by your spouse giving you the gift of fulfillment and you giving him or her the same gift. I mean, it's really cool to go on holiday by yourself, but it's really, 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 really cool to go with someone else and share that experience. It's really cool to go to a fancy restaurant and sit there and have an amazing meal. I mean, it's nice. But I think it's way better to share that with someone else. Sex is the same. Sex is the same. In the context of marriage, there's something beautiful that we get to share with one another. And this has been designed by God. God has given us the ability to give a gift of love and response to another person. And the joy of doing so creates the ecstasy of sexual love in marriage. In the context of marriage, sex is good, sex is beautiful, sex, you enjoy it, it's satisfying, it's fulfilling. This understanding of sex in the context of marriage is so important that Paul advocates not denying one another of this gift. He sees this as incredibly important. He says, guys, so don't deny one another of this gift. Maybe except for the occasional spiritual retreat that maybe you both decide on taking. He says it in verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Some translations include fasting. So they say to prayer and fasting. So don't deny one another. Married folk, look at me. Don't deny one another. Except maybe where you both decide, listen, for a limited time, we want to focus on prayer and fasting. We want to focus on the Lord. 
Don't deprive one another, Paul says. But if you're going to deny one another of sex, it has to be a mutual thing. It has to be a mutual thing. You must not give up or deny your spouse the rights to this kind of enjoyment. To unilaterally deny your spouse is to violate the command of God. And it hurts the marriage. It hurts the marriage. Paul does say that if you mutually decide to deny one another of these gifts, don't do so for a long time. Right? Don't do it for long. Some of y'all want to do some fasting and praying for like six months. Six months is, is too long. Do it for a limited time, Paul says. And then come together again in case Satan be given an opportunity to enter into your marriage. Paul's exact words are, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This lack of self-control is real, people. It's real. It's a real thing. Ask any married couple. It is real. I hear way too many stories of couples who commit adultery and say, oh, it's because my wife or my husband was denying me of sex. And so I went elsewhere for it. They may not use those exact words, but if you peel away at the layers, you'll hear that. See, they longed for deep, satisfying intimacy, but settled for instant gratification. They settled for instant gratification. They went elsewhere. It's like the the Nesquik versus milkshake analogy that I gave last week. See, many of us, we, we run to Nesquik instead of waiting to enjoy the milkshake. There's a difference between Nesquik and milkshake. Trust me. And if you had to put the two here, anyone who would pick the Nesquik, I would say, listen, there's something severely wrong with you. But this is what we do. This is what we do when we are in the context of marriage. We go elsewhere to be sexually fulfilled. Fight for the quality milkshake. See, I believe, uh, I think her name is Kelly's, was onto something. <laughs> if you're not laughing, ask someone who is laughing. Go, hey, what? My, my milkshake brings. <laughs> See, where I believe she was wrong is that maybe she's talking about a whole bunch of guys. It's like, no, in the context of marriage, absolutely. Absolutely. I digress. Don't deprive one another. Don't deprive one another. Don't use it as a weapon against one another. The the denying of sex, this happens in marriage. This happens in marriage where where we'll, we'll use sex, we'll deny one another in a way of punishing the other. We do this in friendships. Think about it. If you want to hurt someone who's your friend, you go, you know what, I'm going to deny you of relationship. I'm going to deny you of relationship with me. So I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to SMS you as much as I used to. Don't want to hang out. Every time you're like, hey, can we hang out? No, I'm busy. Because we're punishing them. See, in the context of marriage, we use sex to do the very same thing. Oh, I'm I'm tired. Now, I understand you could be legitimately tired. I I understand that. Life is busy. You're talking to a man who understands 
being tired, especially when you have kids. It just gets crazy. Be careful. Be careful. If you're constantly going to say, I'm tired, you're opening up. You're opening up for Satan to come in. He's going to use that as a door, whether it's work, whether it's kids. Just don't do it. Don't do it. Because it's, it's like when we try to punish our spouses in this way, it's like drinking poison. Many of you have heard this before. It's like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Not realizing that you're actually killing yourself. You're actually killing yourself. This is maybe something that could be uh, spoken over. You guys could sit and chat and work it out, but you don't. Because of pride, you go, you know what, no. I'm going to punish him. I'm going to punish her. Satan sees that as an opportunity to enter into your marriage. And if you let it continue, we end up having conversations where we're like, how on earth did we get here? How on earth did we get here? It's because you wanted to deprive the other. The point I'm trying to make from the text is that sex is a weapon against Satan. Don't use it as a weapon against one another. That's what Paul is saying, that sex is a a weapon against Satan, but then we want to use it against one another. This now leads me to the third thing that Paul says about sex in marriage. That is very important for us to hear, and that's found in verse 6 and 7. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Paul is saying that sex in marriage, I'm going to keep saying this, because we're forgetful people. You'll walk out of here and be like, no, you were saying sex, ecstasy, enjoyable, fulfillment, yes. That's, that's all I'm going to remember. No, sex in marriage. Sex in marriage. Paul is saying that sex in marriage displays a special gift from God. Marriage itself is a gift from God. But here there's just as much as singleness is. But singleness is also a gift from God. So Paul says some have one gift and some have another. But both express a unique quality about God that is intended to be evidence to us all. Paul is saying marriage is not for everyone. That's what he's saying. I know that goes against our culture. Our culture says the complete opposite. But Paul here is saying that, listen, marriage is not for everyone. Paul himself praises the fact that he is single. Something very foreign in our culture, to praise the fact that you're single. It's, it's like if you're single, people always look at you, it's like, something wrong with you? Especially the older you get, it's like, I wonder what's wrong with him? What's wrong with her? Why don't you get married? Why don't you find someone? And so marriage becomes this, this upgrade that happens. It's like, oh, they got married, thank the Lord. Paul doesn't say that. He says, no, no, no. Marriage is a gift from God, but so is singleness. So is singleness. So foreign in our current culture today. And some might say, maybe because of movies like When Harry Met Sally, or Notting Hill, or Love 
actually, or the notebook. And those are just some of my favorites. <laughs> the notebook. Build that house, brother. They aren't helpful. So they, they paint marriage as this, this ultimate place that one must get to, and if you don't, then you're a loser. And Paul says, no, 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 you guys have missed it completely. Marriage is a gift, and so is singleness. Don't believe the lie. Don't believe the lie that, that this other person will complete me, because that's why many of us get married. I've heard some of the vows, and guys, some of them are, like I'll sit there, and I'll be like, man, I wish I used that one. Maybe then my wife wouldn't have said what she said. I was kind of nervous when my... <laughs> anyway. <laughs> you complete me. Look, I, I get what you're saying, but, but that's actually wrong. That person will never complete you. To put that weight on someone else, they will never do it. They will never satisfy you the way Christ will satisfy you. They will never complete you the way Christ will complete you. And so just don't do it. It sounds great for the first three months, for the first year, for the first four years, the honeymoon stage. It's great until that day where you're like, you know what, I'm sick and tired of you leaving that towel on the floor. All of a sudden that you complete me just doesn't work anymore. I'm like, but, but babes, like I complete you. Like, come on doesn't work anymore and it's in those moments that you got to look back to Christ and be like no he's the one that satisfies me he's the one that completes me even in marriage singleness and marriage are both a gift from God and they, and they show us something they show us something about who he is and our relationship with him Sexuality in marriage reflects a special beauty of God. See, I believe that it illustrates, it displays, it demonstrates, it shows, it expresses to the body of Christ and to the world the unique relationship that exists within the Trinity. See, when we talk about marriage, it's two becoming one. When you talk about the Trinity, it's three who are one. And so it, it's meant to display, it's meant to show that the relationship that exists between the Trinity. It also, in Ephesians 5, Paul writes that marriage is, is to display the relationship that exists between Jesus and the church. See, many of us, we get caught up in Ephesians 5, and it's amazing, you know, husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. Mm, yes, amen, that's beautiful. Wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. Yes, it's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful language. And then the problem is, many of us then forget verse 32, Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul writes, this mystery is profound. Talking about marriage, he says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What Paul is saying is that, listen, yes, marriage is husband and wife, and it's, this relationship is incredibly important, but it's not, that's not the primary thing there. 
That's not the primary thing. It's, a, it's given to us to display the relationship that exists between Jesus and the church. Here we go again. It's not about you. It's not about you. But we've done that. Our culture has done that. It's like, oh, I get married and it's about us and it's just the two of us. and like No one else matters. It's, oh, it's so beautiful and the candlelight and it's just us. No, no, no. We should open up our marriages. Now, don't confuse that. <laughs> don't confuse that. But we should live in such a way that people can look to our marriages and go, hey, it's Christ in the church. Look how he leads. Look how he sacrifices. Look how he loves. Look how she submits. Look how they submit to one another. This is beautiful. This, this is Christ and the church. Do people see that in your marriage? Ooh, that got uncomfortable real quick, right? But that's a question to all the, the married folk in here. Do, do, do people look at your marriage and go, yeah, I see, I see this relationship that exists between Jesus and the church. Or are you so closed off and it's just about you? And, and it's, now the primary thing is you. That's not why marriage was given to us. It was meant to display Jesus and the church. It illustrates the oneness of spirit and identity of person that can only be manifested when two human beings, weak and struggling and failing in many ways, nevertheless learn to live together and love one another despite the problems and the heartaches that they experience. Marriage is difficult. Marriage is challenging. And I'm going to talk about this two weeks from now when we talk about singleness, but, but I feel like this is something that we need to display to the singles in the body. See, many of us, we paint this picture of marriage is so wonderful. You're missing out. And it is wonderful. But it's not always perfect. It's hard and challenging. And you wrestle with one another. This regularly happens. And we should be able to open ourselves up so that people can see that. But not just that, they get to see forgiveness. They get to see repentance. They get to see the restoration. Why? Because that's what happens in the body. That's what happens with us in Jesus. We offend him daily. And regularly he engages us and loves us and forgives us. The world should look at our marriages and see that. They should see the gospel in it. So if that is the gift of marriage, what about singleness? Well, singleness without sex reflects another beauty of God. Remember, it's a gift. It communicates a quality of dedication to a single goal. It communicates a quality of dedication to a single goal. Let me not say too much about this. We'll cover this in two weeks. But I will say this real, real brief. We must not view singleness as less than marriage. We must not view singleness as less than marriage. God has a beautiful plan for you in your singleness. If you're single here this morning, God has a beautiful plan for you in your singleness. And, and in your singleness, we should be able to look and go, wow, I see something beautiful about God and His relationship with us. Singles, do we see that? But we'll get to that in two weeks. 
Hyperpole does say something to the singles. And then he adds those who were once married, but maybe their spouses have died. In verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Again, he suggests that they remain single. This is Paul advocates for it. He's like, listen, there's a lot that you can do when you're single. Singles, you have more time, significantly more time than those who are married and those who are married with children. You just do. The question is, what are you busy using that time with? Or what are you doing with that time? This is why Paul advocates for singleness, because he's just like, I just get a lot more done. We'll get to that in two weeks. However, Paul also recognizes that that reality is usually not ideal. So he lays out a hierarchy of preferences, with celibacy being the most desirable for the unmarried. But the unmarried and the widows were to marry if they could not control themselves sexually. Paul is not saying marriage is better than celibacy, but it is better than burning with passion. It is better than burning with passion. Literally, what Paul is saying is that if they are not able to control themselves, then instead of falling into sexual immorality, instead of falling into sexual immorality, then rather get married. Rather than get married. And sometimes I hear this in, in some dating relationships where it's like, man, it's really, really, really tough. Then get married. Do you love one another? Do you love the Lord? Then get married. No, but we're trying to get our ducks in a row. Forget the ducks. Forget them. Get married because it's 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 better to fall into to, it's better to be married than to fall into sexual immorality. And God honors that. He does. He honors that. This is a man who's man. I had nothing, and you know, I wanted to get married, and I was like, man, I'm getting tempted. It's getting real. My wife is beautiful. I was like, I'm like, God, I want to do this. I'm going to take this step in faith. And he honors that. And he will provide in ways that you will never imagine. Because it's better to get married than to burn in passion, hoping to get your ducks in a row. That's what Paul is saying. And he says this to the church. This word is for those who have crossed the line of faith. Because everything that I've just said, for those who don't believe in Jesus, it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense. He says this to the church. For those who have crossed the line of faith, if you call yourself a Christian, if you look to Jesus as Lord and Savior, then this word is for you. This word is for you that sex is good and it's beautiful. But only in the context of marriage. Only in the context of marriage. But it's also important to know that marriage is a gift and so is singleness. And so we've got to weed out this idea that, no, listen, you've elevated to the next place when you get married. That No, they are both beautiful gifts given to us. And God will provide for both of those gifts. He will provide for both of those gifts. So what then? Great message, good word, what then? 
I just believe as a community we need to talk more about sex in a biblical way. It's not this thing that, that lives somewhere in the corner that we've got to go get and drag out when we need to talk about sexual morality and bash people on the head. Sex is a beautiful thing in the context of marriage. And so this is a word for those who are married. Some of y'all will know this. The married folk in the room, you know when we chat, I'll ask questions like, so how's your sex life? I'll ask that. Because it's a good indication on how you're doing. How is your relationship? Are you denying one another because you're angry? You're frustrated. You're not communicating. See, if we let that linger, Satan will walk in and he will take over. I don't want to sit and have conversations about, well, I decided to leave my wife because I found someone else at work. We need to talk about it. This community needs to talk about it. That's the first thing. The second thing is we, we need to constantly be building healthy marriages. See, what we do in the church, my experience, is we talk a lot about it before it happens. You get married, you love one another, it looks like things are great, and then we never talk about it again. I'm like, no, we need to be constantly building healthy marriages. Why? Because life is difficult. It's marriages, two sinners coming together trying to make this thing work. And so there are days where you're going to be like this. There are weeks where you're going to be like this. And so we need to come around one another and build healthy marriages. It's like taking your car in for a service. There's a reason that you do it in intervals. There's a reason. You don't buy a car and go, you know what, I'm good forever. See you guys 20 years from now. It's like, no. They say, listen, you need to come back every now and then. Just make sure everything is good. I believe we need to do the same thing with our marriages. And so I'll leave you with this. We're looking to start something here at Rooted Fellowship. You can throw that up on the screen. Titling it Love and Marriage, Building Healthy Marriages. I need this. I need this. I need to get around married folk regularly, and I need you guys to be asking me some important deep questions. How's your marriage? You want to know if things aren't going well? Ask yourself this question. When was the last time you had a date night? Guilty on that one. Because things are busy. And things will always be busy. But you need to work through those things. If we're going to build healthy marriages, long-term marriages. We need to be regularly pouring into one another. This is a community effort. This is a community effort so that we might display not only here but to the world the beautiful relationship that exists between Jesus and the church. This beautiful covenant that exists that he loves us more than we could ever imagine that he will never leave us. That he is committed to us. Jesus continues to have date nights with us every time you open up the scriptures. He's engaging. He's regularly asking you, how is your heart? How are you doing? And our marriages need to be the same. Let's pray. And so, Father, we, we come now and, and, and we just simply ask that you would do a work that only you can do.
passage talks about what is, what is sex in the context of marriage. But it asks this because it, it desires to see healthy marriages. It desires to see healthy relationships held together by you, Jesus. And so, Father, I'm asking that we would be a community that, that would talk about this, that would gather around one another and wrestle together. And so I'm praying for marriages maybe in this room that are going through a tough time and are doing that in isolation. I'm asking, Lord, that they would reach out to others and just go, hey, we, we need some help. We run the danger of allowing Satan to come in and tear things up. We need some help. I want to pray for those who are practicing sex outside of your beautiful design. I'm asking that you would shine your light in those areas of darkness. and That you would bring them to a place of repentance. That Lord, you are standing with your arms wide open, ready to receive and love and forgive. And that you restore all things. And that they would hold out, that they would make a commitment to wait on you and to wait on marriage. And Lord, I want to pray for our singles. Father, first and foremost, I, I want to ask for forgiveness. Maybe in my language or my life, somehow I've communicated that they are less than because they are not married, that maybe we don't invite them into certain things or we create these elite clubs for married people. Lord, I ask that you would break that. that we are all one community with various gifts and singleness being one of those and that we can look to them and see something beautiful Father I'm asking that you would make us a real community that we would break down barriers that we would be real with one another that this would be a place where it's okay to not be okay because we're constantly pointing one another to you Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith I'm asking that we would all be like beggars just telling other beggars where to get some good bread. And Lord, you are that bread, that satisfying, fulfilling bread. And you say that if we eat of you, we will desire to go nowhere else. And so make that real for us. Give us faith to believe. Help us in our unbelief. Give us faith to believe that you are all that we need. We ask this in your beautiful, beautiful name. Amen.